who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today, from divorce to call-out culture to masculinity to girls' confidence. Season two of Thread the Needle finds the meeting place between feminist ideals and the realities of women's lives. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Travelcast, episode 412. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. We released a trailer of this episode on the feed this week, which you probably got, so no reason to delay things any further. I think you get the idea that we're getting our Saturday night fever on here at the Drabblecast this week, one that just hasn't, maybe, happened yet. We bring you 1977 by Carrie Vaughn. Carrie's a New York Times best-selling author of more than 20 novels and over 80 short stories. She's best known for the Kitty Norvell urban fantasy series about a werewolf who hosts a talk radio advice show for supernatural beings. The series included 14 novels and a collection of short stories, and the superhero novels in the Golden Age saga. She's been nominated for the Hugo Awards, various RT Reviewer Choice Awards, winning Best First Mystery for Kitty and the Midnight Hour, and won the 2011 WSFA Small Press Award for Best Short Story, for her story Amaralysis. Our main narrator in this full cast production is Naomi Mercer. Naomi's an actor, voice actor, singer, and host. A Seattle native, she moved to Los Angeles for a career in entertainment in 2002, and has since worked in film, television, radio, and online. With her own studio setup and editing skills, Naomi works full-time as a voiceover actor. Recently, she's done the VO for the app Couch to 5K, which won the Appy Award for Best Health and Fitness App of 2012, and the voiceover and Foley sound effects for the new iPad 2 and 3 game Band Together. 
The full cast story also has additional voices provided by myself and frequent Travelcast contributors Mike Boris and Veronica Giguere. So without further ado, we bring you 1977 by Carrie Vaughn. Nineteen seventy seven by Carrie Vaughn. Have another one, the guy said, and Megan did, because she was thirsty, though a martini was probably not what she would be drinking. She was too far gone to question. She downed the drink in three swallows while the guy laughed. Craig, Connor, whatever his name was. The music changed, and her eyes got wide. She shoved the glass at the bar, knocking something over, but was already turning to the dance floor. This is my favorite! What's-his-name laughed. (laughs) Baby, you say that every other song. So, she thought, every other song was her favorite. She'd popped something a little while ago, and it was starting to kick in. Everything went away, but the music, the lights, and her. Her body became ethereal, and she loved the feeling. She didn't have to think about moving. She just did. Like the music came from her. She danced like she was part of it. The guy joined her, gluing himself to her, his hand on her thigh sliding over the silky fabric of her dress. From where he stood, he could see straight down the low-cut neck. Not that that discouraged him. He was a good dancer, and she'd probably go back to his place. Keep the movement going as long as she could. He pulled her against him like he owned her, a slim little doll in a knee-length lavender dress and white strappy heels. Her brown hair feathered around her cheeks, bouncing as she moved her head in time with the music, becoming damp with sweat. Her arms laid across his shoulders and let him guide her. She was on tonight, and her energy fed his. In moments, a space formed around them as people stopped to watch. He took her hand, spun her out, spun her back. She faced out now, snugged close in his arms. Reveling, she looked up as multicolored lights flowed around her. She was going to be so sick tomorrow, hungover and sore, and she wasn't going to remember his name, and she didn't want to see the sun ever again. Two months since she caught Rod in bed with her sister and walked out on him. She ought to be getting over it. She ought to find a job, a place to live that wasn't somebody's couch. She ought to, ought to, ought to. She ought to care, but she didn't. She only wanted this moment, forever. People cheered them on, and it became just like another layer of the music. She and her partner moved in harmony, like it was all planned, but it wasn't. She looked him in the eyes and challenged him, keep up with me if you can. She looked at a lot of guys like that, and many walked away. He dipped her, and she curled her leg around his and arced her body toward him, like she was gonna jump him right there in the middle of the club that got a cheer. It was all part of the dance. She gave him a sultry, half-lidded smile. (laughs) Oh my god, you were so hot. He breathed at her. She traced a line from his throat down the open collar of his shirt to the first button, somewhere below his sternum. Dark hairs peeked out. Hey, uh, let's get out of here, he said, and she shook her head. Not till it's over. She always stayed until the music fell silent. He tried to hide his disappointment. Megan only smiled. 
He wouldn't be the first guy she danced into the ground. The song changed. Her skin burned, her head throbbed, and tomorrow didn't exist. This is my favorite, she breathed. At some moment, the light shifted, out of sync with the music. She noticed, annoyed. They'd all turned to yellow on the offbeat and grew brighter. They'd done something funky. The sparklers disappeared, along with the reds and blues. Everything was yellow and so piercing. She had to close her eyes. Her partner spun her out again, and she was alone, face upturned, watching the back of her eyelids turn red in the lights. The floor disappeared. This was it. She'd finally done it. Man, too much booze, too many pills. It had all caught up with her, and she was going to die of an overdose right there on the lit-up dance floor. Perfect, she thought, smiling vaguely. This was exactly how she wanted to die. This moment would really last forever. It didn't even hurt. For a moment, her body felt weightless. She was leaving it. Her mind was flying, and there was a tunnel of light, just like the crackpot said. But she was still standing when the fierce light faded to normal lit room brightness. She looked at her feet, her pink painted toenails peeking out of the white plastic sandals. She stood on a textured yellow floor, not the club's dance floor with the lighted tiles. She looked at her hands, which were shaking. She was going to throw up. Hey, it worked, a voice called. She looked up to find a guy in a white leisure suit staring at her bug-eyed. He had dark hair and trimmed sideburns, a couple of gold chains, and too many rings. He looked like someone who was trying way too hard. The club never would have let him in. But they weren't in the club. The ceiling was too low, and the walls were too round. Everything was a buttery yellow. She might have said this was a living room. Around the edges were armchairs and a sofa, a coffee table, all expensive-looking and vaguely attractive with soft lines and warm colors. Lava lamps occupied a couple of nooks, and they were lit and morphing into an ideal way that seldom happened in real life. In real life, they tended to gum up. On the other side of the room, a pair of bucket seats sat before a complicated-looking instrument panel, a soundboard times a million, and a cockpit window. The window looked out over black sky and a few pure stars that didn't twinkle. She put her hand on her head. Fuck, I've never been this drunk. The guy stepped toward her. He wasn't what's-his-name. Was he? There wasn't anyone here but the two of them. She stepped back. Um, can I get you something? He said. Water, maybe? Yeah, water. Sure. She was still looking around, off balance. Even the ceiling curved a bit. At least the floor was flat. Can I sit down? Uh, yeah, anywhere. He said from a cabinet in the back where he was pouring something that looked like water. The sofa was the most comfortable seat she'd ever had. The stuffing sank, but not too much. It curved around her, supporting her, but still felt as soft as goose down. She could curl up and go to sleep right there. The guy brought her a glass of water. In his other hand, he held out a little white pill. Take this. She shook her head, which made the room spin. No, no more. It'll clear out your whole system. Instant sobriety. 
too good to be true. Did she trust him? Well, it wouldn't be the first time she'd taken a strange pill from a strange guy. She popped the pill and down half the water before she felt ready to ask, What? Where? She closed her eyes, took a breath, started over. I don't remember you. No reason you should. We've never met. Then what am I doing here? He smiled. You're from 1977. She shook her head. I'm from Glendale. No, I mean, I found you in 1977 and brought you here. To the future. Your future, I mean. This is my ship, the Travolta. We're in orbit just outside the asteroid belt. It wasn't the craziest pickup line she'd ever heard. He wasn't claiming to be an alien from Venus. He hadn't asked her what her sign was. Why? He looked eager. No, he looked crazy, with this fire in his eyes, his hands beseeched. I want you to teach me to dance. She looked over to what, for some reason, she thought of as the front of the room, and through the window to what might have been night sky or outer space. You couldn't find someone local to help you? He sat next to her, and she resisted an urge to scoot away. He wasn't a bad-looking guy. Looked like he had muscles under the shirt. He was taller than she'd thought at first, and he had an earnest smile. All right, so here's the thing. In your time, Disco's got another two years of life in it, tops. After that, it's all kitsch. Sure, lots of people say they like it. There are lots of movies and stuff that show how it's done. But it's all missing something. Nobody takes it seriously. So I want to learn from someone who was there, who understands what it really means. I'm not sure I know what it really means. It's music, you know? That's all. She thought about what he'd said. Two years, and the music would all change? She wasn't sure she could imagine that. She wasn't sure she'd be alive then anyway. You can tell me what it was really like. You can show me. Ever since I heard the Bee Gees in music history class, I've, I've loved that whole period, that whole style, everything about it. But it's hard to find good information, much less anything with any kind of emotion. Wait, you learned about disco in music history? Sort of. We only spent about ten minutes on it. But I've become kind of a, how would you put it, a fan. Her brain felt clearer, like the pill was actually doing what he said it would do. Or it might have been the water. Or both. She suddenly had to go to the bathroom, and this still didn't make any sense. She squinted. Why couldn't you just go back? You like it so much, and if you really do have a, a time machine or whatever, you could go back in there yourself. He gave a shrug. You know how it is. Everyone loves romanticizing the past, but who'd really want to live there? You probably don't even realize how dangerous it is. All the wars, no antibiotics, no... 1977 has antibiotics, she said. It does? He looked perplexed for a moment, gaze turned inward, maybe to a distant history class. 20th century America. Yeah, you're, you're right in the edge, aren't you? She put her head in her hands. This isn't happening. He hovered near her, 
but he didn't touch her, for which she was grateful. I know this wasn't really fair of me to yank you out of your life like this, but I can put you back. Same exact time and place. No problem. (laughs) Like she would want to go back. She hiccuped a laugh and looked at him. His return gaze was so profoundly hopeful. So clear. No booze, drugs, or sex. He just wanted to dance. What's your name? He said. Megan? I'm Oz. She hiccuped again. (laughs) You sure are. Do you have a restroom? Yeah, through the door. She hadn't seen the door until he pointed. A panel that had been flush with the wall near the closet that was, she supposed now, also a kitchen of sorts, slid open to reveal a fully appointed restroom. The fixtures were recognizable enough that she could do what she needed to do. As happy as she was that she didn't have to ask how to use anything, she was a little disappointed that humanity hadn't advanced to space-age supersonic bathrooms, or whatever they were supposed to have. This couldn't be the future. It was so... ordinary. Yeah, this was some game. She could play along. There wasn't a mirror to check how badly her mascara had smeared or to touch up her lip gloss. I mean, not that she had any lip gloss with her. Maybe it was for the best that she couldn't check. She ran her fingers through her hair and smoothed her dress out as best she could, adjusting the thin chains around her neck so they lay straight. But she didn't know why she had to be presentable when she was clearly going crazy. The door slid open when she turned to merely stand in front of it. Hmm. Nice effect, but it still didn't make it the future. Taking in a deep breath, she returned to the main cabin. Oz handed her a thing about the size of a paperback, but thin, like a piece of corrugated cardboard. It had a screen on it and a row of glowing letters. Song titles. Okay, this is all the music I have on file. Here, scroll down by touching that button down there. She did. He had hundreds of songs. All the music, he said, and it sure looked that way. She spotted a Bee Gees title she didn't recognize. Something that hadn't been released yet? If this was the future... Can I play this one? When she touched the title on the screen, it highlighted. She squinted at it. Push the play button there. He pointed to a little arrow on the screen just like the play key on a tape recorder. She did. Sound flowed from everywhere. She couldn't see any speakers. It was like the whole room was a speaker. She didn't care anymore if it was the future or not. Maybe she really had died, and this was heaven. Man, there it came, Barry Gibbs' voice. So bring your jukebox money rich and sweet and a beat to die for on the dance floor and if this really was the future she was hearing this song before anyone else in the world before the Bee Gees even at least before anyone in 1977 what a nice idea I thought you'd teach me some steps before we started the music the classes I've taken before usually start that way she shook her head Uh Uh-uh. You have to learn to feel the music before you learn any steps. The steps don't mean anything if you can't feel it. And she felt it. The steps came naturally, without her thinking, because she'd been doing them for so long. But the important part was still the music and how it ran through you. It didn't matter where or when you were. She'd been kidnapped, she thought absently. 
Didn't matter who or what Oz claimed to be. She ought to be screaming, breaking through the door. She ought to be too scared to dance, but she wasn't. She just closed her eyes and there she was, back at the club. I have a little piece of 1977 here on my ship. I feel like I'm going to cry. She looked at him. He was watching her with an intensity, an appreciation she wasn't used to. She had to interrupt that look. Come on, you try it. She took his hand and led him to the middle of the floor. She expected him to be clumsy. Something about his enthusiasm didn't inspire confidence in his abilities. If he'd been good at this, he wouldn't have needed to kidnap her. But he wasn't clumsy. Restrained, maybe. Nervous. Self-conscious. I mean, most people were. They hung out on the edges of the dance floor, eyeing the crowd like they wanted to make sure no one was actually watching them, frowning instead of smiling, pursing or biting their lips in concentration. And they didn't really move. They might do the steps and bump their arms, but they didn't move. They didn't flow. He swayed from foot to foot, but seemed most interested in watching her. He had a nice smile, she realized, and the kind of hair you want to run your fingers through soft and thick. She took his hand and tried to spin. He didn't have to do anything but hold her hand and let her wind herself in and out of his arms, but she knew he would feel like he was a part of something. His smile brightened, becoming less about wonder and more about happiness. Part of her rhythm and joy of movement flowed into him. She found a different song on his list. Let's try this one. It's got real easy steps. The hustle started playing. The thing about that one was the basic steps were easy, but you could build on them and make the dance more complex as you went along, as you got better. She added a couple of spins, and Oz said, See, that's what I'm talking about. They don't show that kind of thing on any of the vids. So she had to do it again, then showed it to him, and they did it together. Then she faced him, putting his hands on her hips and resting hers on his shoulders. His smile quirked. I haven't been able to practice anything like this. Can't find anyone who's willing to dance with me. He said, giving a shy little shrug. Well then, this is your big chance. They danced. He held back at first, but she was brazen, spinning into him so they were only inches apart, daring him not to back off. She fell and made him catch her in a dip, and he did and the music pulsed, the singers going on about love and loss and forgetting about it all while you danced. He righted her from another dip and held her shoulders. You could stay here, he said suddenly. I I don't have to send you back. If she'd wanted the escape she thought she did, this was the ultimate. She stared at him, breathing a little hard from the dancing, wondering at the song playing. It was another one she'd never heard before. But nonetheless, it sounded familiar. Like this whole place. Like him. Never going back sounded like the best idea in the world. A crash sounded, and an alarm blared through the room. Oh, shit. Oz ran to the cockpit, leaving her standing alone. Absently, she smoothed out her skirt and rearranged her necklace. While he was doing who knew what, the lights flickered, and then a space of air brightened, like a light bulb the second before it burns out. There was a pop, a puff of breeze, and two people appeared from nowhere standing before her. They were cops. Even if the uniforms were unfamiliar, their attitudes weren't. They both wore black boots, trousers, and padded jackets with some kind of insignia, 
and they both had crew cuts and sunglasses. The short one was a woman. The man read from a handheld screen. Osric knew? We detected an unauthorized use of a temporal transducer along your route at approximately 0341. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Oz faced them from the cockpit. What? This is an illegal search. I'll call my lawyer. Where are your idents? The man sighed, like he'd expected this sort of outburst. I'm Officer Brady. This is Officer Jellicle of the Temporal Authority. And we have a warrant. He showed Oz the screen he held. Megan hoped they didn't notice her. I mean, if they did, she had to hope she wasn't important enough that they didn't have anything they could pin on her. This was just like any other bus, right? Just stay out of the way. The woman, Officer Jellicle, said, This isn't a petty violation, New. You're not going to talk your way out of it. What? Using a transducer isn't illegal. I haven't done anything wrong. Both officers looked at him, then looked at Megan. Jellicle looked her up and down. What is that? 1977? 78? She shrugged. Yeah, I guess. Brady tipped his hat at Jellicle and said, You still got it. She gave him a thin smile. Oz rushed to stand between Megan and the officers. She resisted an urge to hang on him, begging to know what was going on. I was gonna put her back. Except that he'd asked her to stay, and she wanted to say yes. She should tell him yes. Jellicle winced and cocked her head to listen. What is that? The ship's engines. Did you program them for a rhythm? They all listened for a moment. Disco Inferno, Megan said. I noticed it a while ago. This is your second offense, New. Brady said, scowling. So to speak. Jellicle added. Megan looked at Oz. What did you bring back the first time? Um, <clears throat> disco ball. He said, pointing to the one on the ceiling. That's the copy. I had to put the original back. He glared at the officers. We're going to have to confiscate your transducer. And send back the girl. Megan grabbed Oz's arms. I want to stay. You said I could stay. He met her gaze, and for a moment music played, even though the song had cut out a long time ago. She imagined it, flying through space with Oz, dancing. Bliss. Jellicle stared at the ceiling and gave a long, suffering sigh. Her partner just shook his head. Ma'am, that isn't going to be possible. She didn't know anything about the rules here, but she should have guessed. The minute it looked like she was getting a break, that something amazing was happening to her and she could dream again, it disappeared. Swallowed up by life. She was afraid she was going to start crying, but she only frowned and looked away. Oz said, There has to be a way. An exemption. Museums get exemptions all the time. That's just the thing, Jellicle said, pulling Oz away. Brady joined them for a huddled conference a few paces away. Nonetheless, Megan listened closely and heard them. The room had great acoustics. Museums get exemptions for objects that were destroyed in history. Things that don't have any further significance. We stopped you because we tracked her. She's important. She has kids. She makes a difference. If she was one of those girls who ended up with her brain fried and drowned in her own vomit, I'd say, yeah, let her stay. But she wasn't, and she can't. 
She has to go back. Now. Oz looked back at her with an expression of frank longing. She was going to wake up from it all like it was a dream. It was all going to fade. But then Jellicle's words hit her. She was talking about their past and her future, as if she had one. Amazing. Here was an epiphany to top all the others from the last couple of hours. Her voice cracked. I... I... I have... kids? They all looked at her. Jellicle spoke. Um, yeah. But you're not supposed to know that. Megan only nodded, lips pressed in a line. What she didn't say was, I have a future. Oz returned to her. Megan, I'm sorry. I... it was wrong. I didn't have the right to take you. I'm sorry. But I... I did have a great time. No, don't be sorry. I had a great time, too. She put her hand behind his neck and kissed his cheek. They spent another moment giving each other goofy smiles. Stand back, New. Brady said. Oz did. Then he opened his mouth to say something, but Megan never heard it. Jellicle pointed some device at her, a box with an egg beater thing sticking out the side. And then, suddenly, disco lights times a million surrounded her, filling her up, drowning her out of sight and sound. The floor gave way, and she was falling. Falling. Then, as if nothing had happened at all, she was standing in the middle of the club, a hundred bodies dancing around her, arms raised, hips swaying, feet stepping, beat throbbing. What's-his-name was dancing with someone else now, and Megan was relieved. Except for that, she was right back where she started. But things were clearer this time. She could see the people, the lights, the speakers, the bar, the drinks. Everything was so clear. She could see the future. She raised her arms up and laughed, thinking, I will survive. our story. Hope you enjoyed it. I love when certain sections of a story really freeze in your brain in terms of driving home a deeper point. Might not always be the same point for different people, but for me, the part that got me the most was this one. If he'd been good at this, the story said, he wouldn't have needed to kidnap her. But he wasn't clumsy, restrained maybe, nervous, self-conscious. Most people were. They hung out on the edges of the dance floor, eyeing the crowd like they wanted to make sure no one was actually watching them, frowning instead of smiling, pursing or biting their lips in concentration. And they didn't really move. They might do the steps and pump their arms, but they didn't move. They didn't flow. I think that's a neat parallel for when we feel like we're in that, you know, drug-addled, hopeless rut that Megan was in. Sometimes hearing the music isn't enough. You have to feel it. The steps don't mean anything, after all, if you can't feel it. Let's move on to our 100-character story winner this week, Travelcast Forums member I Want Something, with this one here. (laughs) 
feels no urge to howl, only to dither and doubt and qualify everything he says. Oh, the horror. He's an as-it-were wolf. Oh, man. Sometimes the punny ones really get to me. You might be next week's winner. Try writing one yourself. That's 100 characters, not counting spaces. You post them in our discussion forums at forums.jabblecast.org in the TwitFix section. We call them Twabbles. You might hear your story on the podcast next week, or see it pop up early on Twitter, where people follow us to get these early, at Drabblecast. That goes for Instagram, Facebook, and any other social media. Follow us. It's good times. We like to keep in touch. If you enjoyed our story this week, please consider donating to the Drabblecast. It's through your generous donations that we run this operation. We pay our authors, our artists, we license music. All sorts of costs go into making this production free for you folks each week. Please consider helping us out and keep us going. We greatly appreciate it. You can find support options off our website, drabblecast.org, and those options include one-time donations and monthly reoccurring donations. And whatever you can give helps. Hey, and here's something I'm really excited about. Next month, August, is our most popular month on the Drabblecast. It's H.P. Lovecraft Tribute Month, where we have a whole month of commissioned original stories by amazing authors. This is going to be our best one ever. I hope you're looking forward to it just like I am. That's coming up. Special thanks to our kick-ass episode artist this week, Carly Heath. Carly's an author and illustrator available for commissions. Find her on Twitter at Carly Heath. Our program this week was brought to you by Sandra O'Dell, Bo Kyers, Merlin Bledsoe, Tom Baker, Melissa Harvey, that strange, pale, child-sized thing running on all fours into the woods that you swear you just saw while you were driving down a lone country road at night. Jason Smith, Adam Pratt, Samantha Henderson, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you, you have a future. Can you dig it? Box On the dance floor, same as it ever was. <laughs> same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye.